Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Ipi Chiwetelu. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, bombarded for hours overnight and through the morning, people in cities across Ukraine heard and felt more than a hundred Russian aerial attacks. A Ukrainian member of parliament describes the damage in Odessa and what it was like to hear those strikes just as he was reading his son a bedtime story. No main, no gain. Donald Trump finds himself kicked off another primary ballot, this time in the state of Maine. We speak to the only U.S. representative from Maine openly applauding the decision. Thin ice, Ted Nolan tells us about the first time he laced up his hockey skates on Garden River First Nation, the NHL career that followed, and the prejudice he faced time and time again. Now, more than 25 years after an acrimonious departure from the league, Ted Nolan has written a book about his love for a game that didn't always love him back. We're revisiting Neil's October conversation with him about life in two worlds. A sea change of plans. When Kara Youssef first heard about a three-year round-the-world cruise, it was a bucket list dream come true. Now she and her husband are stuck abroad, hoping for a full refund without a home or a solid itinerary for the year ahead. And tis the seasoning. People in Vancouver are coming together for New Year's to prepare hundreds of Japanese rice cake mochi. We hear why making the fluffy sweet desserts means hours of kneading and pounding. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that knows there's never too mochi of a good thing. Ukrainian officials are calling it one of the biggest attacks since the war began. At least 30 people are dead in Ukraine after a Russian aerial assault. At least 144 people are injured, and an unknown number of people were buried under the rubble. In Odessa, rockets hit residential buildings. Oleksiy Goncharenko is a Ukrainian opposition MP. We reached him in Odessa, Ukraine. Oleksiy, what did you feel and hear as this barrage began? The attack uh, had started yesterday evening, mm-hmm. uh, late evening, and there were explosions, air defense working. And then uh, one of drones hit residential building in Odessa. So I had a number of explosions. And then uh, in the night there was air raid alert, but then the new attack started early morning with the missile attacks. As a result... Uh, Several residential buildings are hit. Four, four people are killed. Near 20 people are wounded and uh, injured, including children. I, I saw some of, of what you posted on, on social media and other coverage of of the attacks as well. But before we, we describe that, I just wondered for you personally, I mean, you've experienced this over, over all of this time as well throughout this war. But what did it feel like to you this time? How do you experience it now? I mean, from one point of view, you, you, you like we are got you, we got used already to this. But from another point of view, it's something you you never can be used to. And like yesterday, I was late evening. I was uh, I was telling the fairy tale to my small boy who is five years old. And at this time, this explosion started. And he started to cry, saying that, oh, maybe our house will be hit. So that's that's difficult. And uh, uh, and definitely all people are shocked. It's a Christmas, New Year time. It's a holiday time. Yeah, it's not the best time for my country now. But in any way, people try to yeah. celebrate as they can. But things like these, they are like very difficult to 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 digest. Yeah. 
What did you tell your son? Uh, he went down uh, to to shelter, and I said everything will be okay. You know, like what 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 could I tell him? And in the morning after these explosions and everything, uh, when uh, he he played he played the game that he's a defense hunting for Russian missile. Oh. I mean that's yeah that's kind of things like how flexible are from one point of view our children in their minds but also it's something they're traumatized with this and that's awful what story were you were you reading to him oh we have a story it's our special story about ice cream robot that's something <laughs> we 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 invented ourselves oh. and uh, so yeah that is the story which i'm telling him every night I did see some of what you posted this morning on social media in, in the aftermath of the attacks uh, and specifically in Odessa where you are, as we've mentioned. And it was it was quite striking to see that building, a couple of the floors clearly bombed out, burned out. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it look, it's hard to process how that building is even standing where, where, the, where the attack happened. But also there are cars behind you and shops. It's a residential area. That, that juxtaposition was quite interesting to see as well. Yeah, that's true. Again, it's just residential area. So it's a, just, a, just an act of terror. That's all. The timing of the attack, you mentioned the difficulty in terms of just, you know, the fact that, that it, it's the time of Christmas uh, and New Year is coming up. But in terms of military strategy and, and politics, what do you make of that timing? Uh, I think that it's uh, Putin's attempt to to attack moral of Ukrainians. It's def like the second year, everybody, what people are thinking in the end of the year, they're trying you know, to summarize the year which is passing and to think about perspectives of next year. And everybody is speaking about, oh, when this war will finish and everything. And Putin just he showed that he wants to continue the war. He still has capacity to produce the missiles. Mm -hmm. They have it for, like, it's an unbelievable number of missiles by the way, I would like to thank all our allies and partners because it was 158 missiles and drones which attacked Ukraine this morning and like two-thirds of them were intercepted mm -hmm. and that was done with the help of the weaponry and defense we received from our partners. So we can definitely say that just this morning uh, countries which support us, including Canada, United States, United Kingdom, other countries, they just saved dozens and maybe hundreds of lives. We were dealing with a very strong army, one of the strongest in the world, with a country which invests everything to military. Uh, Russian military budget is one-third of all their incomes. Uh, one-third of the whole budget is military. And uh, people, they don't have toilets in their houses, millions of Russian people, but they are producing missiles, uh, aircrafts, and everything to kill other people. So dealing with such country, I think the result of 2023 is a big success of Ukraine. Uh, but yeah, we want this war to finish. And it's clear that we can't answer when it will finish. Are you worried it won't end? I don't know. I, I mean, like, I feel that the whole next year the war will continue. I think that Putin will continue till the elections in the United States. Uh, and because he hopes that can be some change in the United States or with maybe some leader who will uh, decide to isolate the United States from the world affairs. And that's something Putin hopes on. And uh, so I think he will continue at least till November of last, of, sorry, of next mm -hmm. year. Um, and he really doesn't want any kind of peace today. So what will be then? We will see. It's very hard to predict what will be in one year. Alexei, I thank you for your time. Thank you. Alexei Goncharenko is a Ukrainian opposition MP. We reached him in Odessa, Ukraine.
The Secretary of State for Maine has ruled that Donald Trump's name will not appear in the ballot in next year's presidential election. This will surely face a court challenge, as will a similar recent decision from the Colorado Supreme Court. The decision rests on the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which bars insurrectionists from holding office. Despite legal challenges, California, Michigan, and Wisconsin have all confirmed that Trump would remain on the ballot. At the time we reached her, Representative Shelley Pingree was the only member of Congress remaining to speak up in support of the decision. We reached her in North Haven, Maine. Representative Pingree, you support Maine's Secretary of State's decision to keep Donald Trump off the ballot there. Why? Well, it was a decision she, frankly, was duty-bound to make. Um, in our state, she's allowed to make the rulings on who is qualified to be on the ballot. She does that many times over the course of an election cycle. And in my opinion, uh, she, you know, had a hearing, took in a lot of information, and made the correct decision that Mr. Trump did not qualify for the ballot because of his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I'm a member of Congress. I was there on January 6th. I fully believe that he incited and led that insurrection. And based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of our Constitution, which all of us as elected officials are duty-bound to uphold, she made the decision that she had to. You are the only member of Maine's congressional delegation to express support for this decision, though. And you know, I'm sure uh, that your fellow Democrat, Jared Golden, uh, has said, quote, we are a nation of laws. Therefore, until he is actually found guilty of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot, end quote. Why do you believe Donald Trump should be blocked from running for office even before he's tried and, and potentially convicted for insurrection? Well, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires a conviction, and I don't think there's any question about the insurrection and about the role that he played in it. Uh, We all took a vote in the House of Representatives to impeach the president based on our feelings that he played that significant role. So uh, I do believe this will be tested in the courts. It'll likely go to the courts in our own state, and then eventually the Supreme Court will rule on it. And as you know, with all legal interpretations, there could be any number of other ways of looking at it, but it seems fairly straightforward to me. Senator Susan Collins posted a message on social media saying, quote, the Secretary of State's decision could deny thousands of Mainers the opportunity to vote for the candidate of their choice, and it should be overturned, end quote. And I wonder how how you respond to that. Why shouldn't voters be able to decide whether Donald Trump is fit for office or not? Sure, and I totally understand that opinion. And honestly, if um, if she wasn't sworn to uphold the Constitution and hadn't made legal interpretation, the Secretary of State herself may have felt um, that it was easier to allow the voters to do that. So it was a decision that had to make, be made. I mean, politically, I'm a Democrat. Perhaps I would prefer if it w- he was on the ballot and people didn't have to be upset about him being removed. Um, there's all kinds of ways you can look at this. But if you're trying to go for an interpretation of the Constitution and following the laws, um, she or or the same, um, the courts in Colorado, they've had to make this decision. And this will be a decision made in many other states. Ultimately, it could be decided by the Supreme Court um, how they see it. But this is the decision that our secretary of state chose to make. A spokesperson for Donald Trump's campaign, Stephen Chung, uh, as you may have read, has been quoted as calling this, quote, partisan election interference efforts and also, quote, a hostile assault on American democracy. If all of the circumstances were the same, but the candidate we're talking about was a Democrat, would you still push for this? Would you feel the same way about these decisions? Well, I don't think it's an assault on our democracy. Um, in in the quote that you just read, um, I think it is actually a functioning democracy doing exactly what was said. Uh, I think Donald Trump assaulted our democracy when he attempted to overturn what we were legally obligated to do in Congress. That was to certify the election. If this was a Democrat and a Democrat had fostered this level of insurrection and we had the level of attack on our Congress when we were attempting to certify an election, uh, I'd be I'd be just as frustrated with the Democrat. If all the evidence was exactly the same, then, of course, a Democrat in that situation shouldn't be on the ballot or the decision should have been done in exactly the same way. 
hard for me to picture, but of course that could happen. As you know, one of the you know major planks and messages that Donald Trump puts out as part of his campaign in all the years leading up to this point as well is that he is a victim. Uh, and he repeated you know, this idea that this was election interference. We spoke with, in the Colorado decision, conservative uh, strategist Sage Nauman, and, and he agreed that Donald Trump should not be elected and that he's unfit for office in his view, as others have said as well. But he and others are concerned that, that keeping him off the ballot feeds right into the narrative that Donald Trump has been pushing and will continue to push and that this will actually help him. Does that worry you? I agree with the thought that Donald Trump always tries to portray himself as a victim. You know, when he is doing something wrong, that something has been done against him. And I wholeheartedly agree that this may energize his supporters who say, you know, once again, it's a partisan attack, just as his lawyer has said. And so, again, as a Democrat, I may wish that this challenge wasn't there. Um, I wish many things that Donald Trump is able to capitalize on to increase his popularity with the group of people who support him um, that didn't exist. But sometimes those things don't work out as well strategically for the Democratic Party or for um, an election. But that's how democracy functions. And uh, we have to go with what we think is legal and true. Just before we let you go, Representative Pingree, I wanted to go back to something you said at the outset of our conversation. You mentioned being there on January 6th. And I wonder if you could just tell us briefly what it was like for you there. Yeah, I was not one of the members who was trapped inside of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. I was in Washington that day. Uh, I was actually headed into the Capitol um, when they had to lock it down and came into the Capitol later when we had the chance to vote. But it was a, a traumatizing day for all of my colleagues and staffers and everybody who was in the building. And it's unquestionable that President, former President Trump was leading that insurrection, which led people to the Capitol and incited that insurrection. And there are consequences to your actions, which is what former President Trump is facing right now, the consequences of the actions that he took. Representative Pingree, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate being with you today. Representative Shelley Pingree represents Maine's 1st Congressional District. We reached her in North Haven, Maine. On November 1st, the longest cruise ever was supposed to set sail. The Life at Sea cruise is going to stop in 382 ports over the course of three years. Hundreds of people sold their homes and uprooted their lives. The only problem? The cruise company behind Life at Sea, Marais Cruises, didn't have a ship that could handle the journey. And so the cruise was canceled last month. Kara Youssef and her husband Joe sold their two apartments and were ready for three years of travel. And now they are stuck in a hotel waiting for a refund. We reached Kara Youssef in Istanbul, Turkey. Kara, you and your husband are waiting for a refund. How much money are we talking about? Um, the total amount is just over 83000 U.S. dollars. You you sold your homes, both of your apartments, and a lot of your belongings to help come up with the money to be able to to afford this. And as you wait, you're you're staying in a hotel in Istanbul. How long can you afford to do that? Uh, well, actually, the hotel is covered by Marais, so this, as of right now, is not costing us anything. But how long can you stay there, even if it's covered? Um, we don't know. It's yeah. it's a little bit uh, stressful for us. The um, one of the representatives of Marais is obviously would like us out as soon as possible. Um, but I informed him when we agreed to a payment plan that I would need to be here until I received my payment in full, and he said okay. When you say he, are you speaking about Vedat Urlu, the owner of Marais? No, I'm speaking mm -hmm. about one of the his workers, mm -hmm. his name is Etham, mm -hmm. um, and he is the uh, COO of Marais. If we go back to when you first found, found out about Life at Sea, you first heard about it, what made you and your, and your husband want to sign up for it? 
It was, I mean, it was everything we could have asked for. It was a lifetime bucket list um, that we could have completed in less money and less time and a lot less hassle than we ever would have been able to manage on our own. You know, there are many people who love cruises uh, and only travel that way, only see the world that way. But, you know, that might be for a week or two. So why did you think that this years at sea, this idea of years at sea would be the right decision for you guys at at this point? Uh, well, we live pretty minimalistic anyway. We we love to travel and we do as much of that as we possibly can. Um, but we're we're used to living in smaller spaces and and minimal, minimalistically. So doing that on a on a cruise ship, it was more about basically having a traveling hotel room yeah. um, rather than the cruise experience. What spoke to you most about it? I mean, we were scheduled to to see 140 countries. This this was everything that we could have asked for in traveling. Um, you know, we would like to see the world. We've we've done as much traveling as we could, um, but it's it's complicated, and we're not young. We don't want to be backpackers, and so the challenges of going and seeing Southeast Asia uh, it either becomes a six month trip going from place to place. Mm-hmm or you really don't get to see things and we're not we're not able to do backpacks and we don't want to carry around suitcases for six months for one week here and one week there and two weeks here so many people felt felt the same way and and had dreams wrapped up and money wrapped up in this trip when did did you get your first inkling that that something was up and this may not actually happen i think that joe and i were really hopeful the entire time i mean we we got nervous for the first time um, when Mikhail had left the organization. Um, and That's Mikhail Peterson. And the on, uh, just to let our listeners know, Mikhail Peterson mm-hmm. is the entrepreneur who initially had the idea for cruise and for this cruise and was working with Mireille's owner to do this. So he left. Yes. When he had left, we got nervous. Um, but Kendra Holmes, the uh, woman that had taken over as CEO after he left, um, she she did a very good job of uh, putting people's mind at ease and explaining what was going on and, uh, you know, sort of spelling out the process and making people comfortable. What did she tell you? You, you know, she did three webinars a day for a week. Many of the webinars, I mean, some of them were four hours long. Uh, so she said a lot. She repeatedly answered people's questions. She was very realistic and down to earth in her answers. Whereas previously with Mikhail, um, he had promised the sun, the moon, and the stars. So it was very refreshing to have somebody speak to us like things could actually happen, like it was real and going to mm-hmm. going to transpire in an achievable way. And when did you realize, no, you were already in, in Istanbul at that time? Uh, actually, well, we got nervous before we came to Istanbul. And it was part of the reason that we decided to continue on to Istanbul. Because as per our contract, we had we only received any sort of protection or coverage if we were in Istanbul. Otherwise, any costs due to the delay being incurred would be on us. How likely is it, do you think, that, that you will get all of your money back? <laughs> Maybe I'm delusional. I'm still hopeful. It's incredibly frustrating. I don't know the the entire backstory of what these delays are and what is going on. I was one of now very few fortunate people to, I received a transfer today after the release of the New York Times article mm-hmm. from Ethem for the first um, of my three transfers. So some of the media coverage, I think, has prompted a little bit more movement. How much money did they give you back? The first transfer was for one third. I'd need to look up and see what the exact amount was, but it was split into thirds. And did they say anything else as, as you got that transfer? Um, they asked me if they could book my flight home. <laughs> I said that, no, as we agreed, I would be here until I received my payment in full. 2024, what will it hold for you and your husband? You know, we really haven't been able to focus on planning for the future at this point. Our future is completely dependent on whether or not we get a refund. It makes a massive 
difference to our financial situation and what we could potentially be planning to do. Kara, I appreciate your time. I hope you, you get the answers you need. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kara Youssef and her husband are waiting for a refund for their canceled Life at Sea cruise. We reached her in Istanbul, Turkey. You have probably heard of the Japanese dessert mochi, and enjoying the mini rice cakes is something people do all year round. But making mochi at the end of every year is also a special Japanese tradition that brings people together. The Vancouver Japanese Gardeners Association is hosting a mochi-making affair to celebrate this New Year's. And the CBC's Michelle Mikuljan caught up with Tim Nishibara and Raymond Inoka at the event. For someone who's never tried mochi, can you try to describe it for us? Oh, it's the best thing in the world. It's uh, it's 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 this fluffy and uh, moist, uh, chewy rice cake, and it stretches out like cheese, but it's almost got a very subtle sweet flavor to it. And with uh, addition to certain things like sugar and kinako and red bean, it all just starts to change its uh, its 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 uh, texture and its flavors. What is the significance of mochi and the new year? So mochi uh, typically ha- uh, happens uh, for the new year, uh, and uh, it's a community event. Uh, so people get together, and uh, they uh, work together to make a mochi. Yeah, it looks very communal. You know, everyone has a role that they're playing. Can you describe the, what's going on in there? You have a whole production line. <laughs> so it actually happens from uh, two days prior. So two days ago, uh, they uh, wash the rice and they soak it in water for two days. And then uh, this morning, uh, they come in and start boiling the water. And then, uh, well, basically, they'll steam the rice uh, for about 50 minutes. And then uh, after that, uh, they put it into a kneading machine. Uh, and originally it was done with a hammer. Uh, three or four people would put it into the uh, stone bowl uh, called usu, and then uh, they would knead it uh, manually, but now they use a machine to make the process go quicker. And it looks like very laborious, um, and people, just so our audience knows, they're trading off with the hammers because I imagine it, you get quite tired after a while. Yes, yeah, it does take quite a bit of strength and uh, effort. So uh, uh, about after your fourth or fifth time, your arms get pretty sore. You heard Tim Nishibata and Raymond Inoka speaking to the CBC's Michelle Mikuljan on the early edition today. Now I want many mochi. Uh, And I appreciate all the effort. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. That goes into making them, and I will give all the effort to to eat all the mochi. For many, this is the most wonderful time of the year. And by that, I mean the International Ice Hockey Federation's World Junior Championships, of course. That annual tradition that's beloved by fans of the sport. And this year's tournament is now in full swing. Prospects from the world's top hockey-playing nations are busy showcasing their talents in Sweden in hopes of boosting their value in the 2024 NHL Entry Draft. You know that... 
massively, hugely anticipated televised event that elite hockey players and their families pretty much plan their lives around. Except it isn't always like that. And it certainly wasn't for Ted Nolan. Ted is an Ojibwe hockey player and coach whose book, Life in Two Worlds, A Coach's Journey from the Reserve to the NHL and Back, came out earlier this year. It's the story of his childhood growing up as one of 12 kids in Garden River First Nation in Northern Ontario, and of an unlikely NHL career that had more than its fair share of rough patches. From our archives, here's Ted Nolan's October conversation with Neil about that incredible journey. Ted, can you take us back to that first time you laced up your ice skates in Garden River? You write about it in the book, and and it struck me. Can you describe it, what that moment was like for our listeners? Well, I tell you, that's when when we all, I guess we all reflect back on certain parts of our life, and and certain parts are are very uh, memorable. And, you you know, growing up in Garden River, uh, you know, making that first... uh, First sheet of ice in my in my backyard with the, with a the pail of water and skating over the moonlight. Uh, I tell you, those were uh, wonderful memories of, of the freedom of, of the sport. We all have uh, escape mechanisms to uh, avoid some of the dis- uh, things that don't work out very well in your yeah. life, and hockey is just one of those uh, escapes. I just went out and uh, skated in the, on the ponds in the back and uh, in the rivers and. Uh, and the self-made rink, and that's where I fell in love with the game. What do you think you were you were escaping from? Because I was quite moved by how you described how loved you felt and your admiration for your parents, their warmth, what they instilled in you. Yeah, you know, I was escaping. You know, on on the flip side of that, there were some moments where, uh, you know, with the with the residential school and, and the mental health and, and the trauma that that affected people and. Uh, there was there was a lot of um, uh, drinking in our house. Also, uh, that's when the the happy stories that they were starting to tell. Uh, the more they drank, then all of a sudden the, the dark stories came out. Then they start talking about the injustices that had, that happened, and all of a sudden there's tears, and all of a sudden there's that's when you know when you're you're sitting in your bed, you hear uh, you hear some arguing, you, you hear some chairs turning over, you hear some uh, loud yelling. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of you put your pillow over your head and you you try to try to forget about it. But when it happened during the uh, early evenings, then that's when I escaped, went for a run or or, yeah. or played hockey. Yeah, you described that feeling that deep love uh, and, you know, you didn't have to look for friends because your siblings were, were right there uh, and you were this big, warm group. But you, you did say you didn't always feel safe. And sometimes that meant at school as well. Yeah, no no question. We, we I didn't uh, uh, go to residential schools, no. but I went to day schools, which started off in reserve. And uh, and that wasn't, wasn't too, too pleasant. I went there for about two to three years. And then we went to the city of uh, Sault Ste. Marie and they bust us all in and getting off. And, and we looked a little bit different from everybody else. We, they served us lunch in, in a separate, uh, separate area at the time. You know, they, they brought us into the nursing station and they used to comb our hair with the, with one of those fine tooth combs to make sure that we don't have any bed lice. They look through our nails and uh, check us all over like we're, we're like we're cattle before they, they release us into, into the main population with everybody else. So you, always felt a little bit different but thank god we had our ourselves to to really lean on uh, during those early years and there's a you say right off at the beginning of the book some words your dad gave you that he would always tell you um and that you didn't really understand why he was focusing on that because you loved who you are and who who your family is but what did he tell you and how did that help you during those times when you know the teachers and students weren't behaving as they should you know, I've always from from both my parents. They they've always instilled in me the uh, be proud of who I am, and 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 the, we we talked about our culture and 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 one of the sad sad parts is you know they they both spoke uh, Ojibwe, but they never taught it to us, mm-hmm. and they, they were so afraid because of what happened at the residential schools. So they just didn't want that pain to go on us. But uh, growing up, they always told us to to fight who we are and be proud of who we are and. And so that's why my father said that to me a thousand and one times. And I didn't know he was really preparing me for those tough times that I was going to get to in the future. Maybe maybe he saw it 
and and the sport itself. You know, the, yeah. he just uh, he just wanted to make sure I had fun. He just said, "Hey, you have fun today," and and he wasn't looking at me to be become a NHL player. I assumed at the time, but my brother told me uh, a number of years later when he when he passed away that my father always thought that I could uh, yeah. I could play this game for a living. So, but he didn't tell me that. He just told me to have fun and and to be proud of who I am. That really got me. That was one of the moments in the book that got me that he always just said have a great time did you have fun on the ice there was none of that pressure when you you started playing hockey you leave garden river um first you're in Sault Ste. Marie uh, but then you go to Kenora and that's a pivotal moment on a couple of fronts but particularly difficult years can you tell me a little bit about what you experienced there it, it was a whole it was a whole different level like I said I grew up in uh, you know, hearing the stories, you know, hearing about the injustices, but I always, I always had faith in in people that uh, they're not all bad. People are not all bad. They're just some. So I, I always had the faith that if you worked hard enough and if you did the right things, things would work out. And and when I went to Kenora, um, I had that belief, and I was just thrilled. I thought I was going to Disney World. <laughs> and then when I got there, the the reality of the uh, the environment at the time. It wasn't so pleasant, and people look at you, and all of a sudden you have some fist fights in the uh, parking lot, I guess. And then you go to the hockey rink, trying out for the team, and somebody would spear you and say, "What are you doing here? You, you wahoo!" Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, have some fights in, in the team that I'm trying out for. I tell you, it was a really rude awakening to what was out there when you leave the reserve. It uh, the game of hockey really changed for me personally, but I didn't want to quit. Uh, I, I wanted to persevere and fight through it, and and uh, and I'm, you know, writing letters. We didn't have a phone, so mm-hmm. I'm writing letters back home. I didn't want my my family to to know what I was going through, and I, I thought I could do it on my own, and and I did, but I, I did it in the wrong way because I, I I kept a lot of those those feelings inside, and by doing that, I, I don't remember the the whole year. I don't remember. I get that that gives us all a sense of just how difficult, how traumatic it, it must have been. Ted, let's get to that moment where you, that draft moment, because it's quite a moment in, in the book. Uh, I think you're playing cards with your family uh, at home and you've got the radio on. We love radio here at As It Happens. And these things are such huge events now. But what comes across the radio when you're sitting there at the table? Oh, you know, we're just playing cribbage. We always played cribbage. We sat down, drink tea and coffee and have, you know, we sit down there for hours and hours. And then one day we're, we're sitting down with, with my girlfriend, who's my wife now, and my mom, we're playing cribbage. And all of a sudden on the radio came on that uh, from the NHL draft, uh, local product, Ted Nolan from Garden River, just got drafted in the fifth round by the <laughs> Detroit Red Wings. My mom really didn't know what draft was, and, and tell you, I didn't really know too much about it. But uh, you know, just with, with my father passing a couple of years before, and times were a little lean, so I didn't want to. Uh, I was excited, Zach, tell you, uh, sure. But I, I didn't want to show my emotions in front of someone, and I just kind of washed it off and say, "Hmm, wonder what that means." And we about ten minutes later, my wife, or my girlfriend at the time, we hopped in the car, we went up into the woods, and we. Uh, we we let our emotions be <laughs> yelling and screaming, and I tell you that was a that was a moment. But it's a moment that you should be able to share with everyone. But at yes. the time, you know things weren't uh, as happy as as they should. So uh, kind of uh, squashes that that yeah. moment for for uh, celebration. It's a beautiful moment in the book. I, I could picture you both, you and Sandra, screaming. At, I think you were standing on the hood of your car, if I if I remember correctly, and yelling. Um, but also just to hear you talk about it, that's incredibly selfless at such a young age, Ted. Well, you, you know, when I when I went to Kenora too, and coming home at Christmas time, and you know, everybody asked me how it was going. I said, "Oh, you should see it. It's it's a big town, and uh, we travel on bus. We go in." So I I, I kind of skimmed through what I what I I envisioned it to be when I left, but it wasn't that when I got there. Since you brought up. Your your wife, Sandra, uh, I understand she was the one who told you, if you're going to write this book, you have to lay it all, all out there. You have to tell the whole truth. Oh, no, no question. I mean, that uh, you know, you, we all have guardian angels in our life, I, mm-hmm. I believe, someone to uh, really watch over us. Because we, we wouldn't be talking about this. My, my career wouldn't have happened. Uh, and Sandra was only 16 years old when we met, and I was 18 and married now 40-something years. But, mm-hmm. but going through what I went through early in my life, 
and feeling unsafe outside of the outside of the reserve. And when I got drafted to the Detroit Red Wings, I went to the camp and uh, I, I left because I, I didn't feel like I fit in. And uh, Ted Lindsay, uh, thank God, he he called me and asked me what the problem was, and, and he asked me to come back. But I would never have went back if uh, if Sandra mm-hmm. said she wasn't going to come back with me. And really showed me the, the really, because I, I had it with my parents, my family, that unconditional love. But I never had it for outside of my family. I'm glad you found each other. And that is a powerful thing, unconditional love. Because there were more tough times ahead, certainly. You know, we talked about that high point when you found out about the draft and cheering. But then in 1986, you have a back injury uh, that later you find out is career ending. And your reaction might surprise people. You were You were excited about that. Tell us why. I, I was very excited about it because I, I didn't have to go through that anymore. You know, name calling and, and, and physical attacks and, and fighting, sometimes even fighting with your own teammates. And some of the coach making fun of how you stick handle and turning the stick into a uh, a tomahawk and pretending that's the way I, I stick handle. So it was just so much to, to bear. And tell you the truth, it, it seemed like I was holding my breath uh, the, the whole time. And uh, it, it takes its toll. It, it really does. And so when I when I got injured, and when the doctor finally told me, he says, "Ted, uh, um, looks like you might not be able to play because of your injury," I was I was just thrilled to death when they told me I I couldn't play because I the one thing I didn't want to do uh, was to quit. I, I didn't want to I didn't want to quit. So I just uh, persevered. But I I was tired of, of persevering through it. I, I was uh, I was worn out and. I just really wanted to be me. In the end, the ice does call you back, but in a different way. You realize that you really love coaching and molding young players. How did that feel? You know, I, I, I feel really blessed in my life with certain things. When I went back to school at Lake Superior State University, I was so happy about the next chapter of my life. Then I ran into the, the coach of the Lake Superior State Lakers. His name was Frank Anselm. And uh, walked down the hallway and he said, Ted, uh, I understood you played pro hockey. Would you mind coming out to practice helping the young kids? And I said, sure. And I, I went out and I, I did that for a little while. Then all of a sudden, uh, you know, for some of the listeners out there who remember the name uh, Phil Esposito, mm-hmm. uh, happened to be from my home, near my hometown in, in Sault Ste. Marie. And he owned the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And he asked, uh, how come I'm doing that over there? You should be doing it over here. And I said, no one asked. So anyway, long story short, uh, before you know it, I'm I'm staying uh, behind the bench of the Sioux Greyhounds as assistant coach. And I just I just fell in love with with coaching. And then, you know, a few few months later, Phil asked for if I'd be head coach. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, but I I just uh, fell in love with. It. I, I made everybody on our team feel as important as as the star players did. So I just really wanted to treat everybody the same and, yeah. and felt with it. And then we won. And uh, that led into the next career of, of coaching. You were certainly good at it. You helped turn things around in a very big way as head coach of the Buffalo Sabres. And in 1997, you were rewarded for, for that and for all of your work. Let's just play a clip of that moment. And the Jack Adams Award goes to Ted Nolan. Wow. I, I, you know, to start off a couple years ago, I was just really happy just to, to be in a league and, and to stand here is, it's unbelievable. But, <clears throat> wow. I, I'm just really, really thrilled to be right here. And there's a lot of people in my life that, uh, that helped along the way. And, and I'd, uh, I'd just like to thank Buffalo Sabres for, for giving me the opportunity to coach in the league. And, uh, of course, uh, no, we can make it. Uh, Mario said it, and, and, and a couple of other players said it. You know, family's so important, and I'd like to thank my family. Thanks. It's such an emotional uh, and powerful moment. How does that moment sit with you now? You know, I, I was, I was, I was thrilled to at that time to, because you, you, when you, Neil, when you, when you work your whole life and you, and you fight through some of that stuff, then all of a sudden you, you get to the, to the, to the pinnacle of, of your of your career and that's the nhl that's the highest level you can go and all of a sudden you, you win coach of the year yeah. and I, like i said at the time it was just 
one of the moments I was so happy and when I said no one uh, no one does it by themselves so I just remember it all and that's why I get so emotional because mm -hmm. you remember all the people who went before you and the the residential school survivors and and our and our elders what they had to endure for us to be here so I was just I was just over the moon and I was just uh, just really really thrilled to to be at that point at that time and uh, uh, what happened after that uh, uh, we we can discuss later yeah well we you know you you open your book um, with a very brief story of of that award, the trophy coming to your house, and it's not this joyous unboxing moment, right? You kick it down the stairs. So, for people who who don't know your story or have only heard rumors about it, why were you so angry at that moment instead of celebrating? You know, after the the award, uh, the Buffalo Sabers offered me this. Uh, uh, bad contract it was the same thing I made, not even a a, a penny a, a raise, and I just felt they didn't want me, so I I turned it down, assuming that I would get another uh, another position, which uh, which never came, except for Phil Esposito did ask me to coach in Tampa Bay Lightning mm -hmm. the following season, but uh, my family was uh, a little bit more important than than a job, and so I just turned it down, waited for the next one. I mean, I just won Coach of the Year, James. You should you'd think. Uh, you'd get a job with, with anybody. But to answer your question, um, it was just when, when you fought so hard and all of a sudden they, they take it away. And when that trophy came, it was just uh, uh, my state of mind at the time, my, my mental health, going through all that stuff. It just represented everything that, that was wrong in the sport. I just kicked that thing as hard as I could and not ever wanting to, to be involved with the, the sport again. And uh, you know that was my, my mental state. To what extent do you think racism was the reason for what happened to you after that big win when your career should have, in your view, kept going and going? You know, I mean, people would say uh, a little differently, but I strongly believe that it was because of my, my race. Nobody knew who I was. Um, when you have someone who looked like me, a little bit different than you hear rumors about drinking and about mm -hmm. uh, coming to practice drunk and all. I mean, that, that set me for a loop and... Um, but part of the book, I asked uh, a, a former colleague of mine who yeah. uh, he was part of a, another franchise in the league that uh, his GM told him that uh, I was drinking at practice. I'm going, what? Uh, unfortunately, it ruined my reputation. Nobody wanted to uh, talk to me. I, I did have some some interviews and, and what have you, but uh, sometimes they look like you're just token interviews. There was, yeah, then you do get a really promising offer. I mean, they say they're going to announce it. The next day, you tell Sandra you're excited, and then you get a call. And when you hear that those words, we decided to go in a different direction. What do you think now when you hear those words back? Um, when I got offered the job, uh, they said, well, go get a new suit. Uh, we'll introduce you at the draft tomorrow. Yeah. And I went out and got a brand new suit, got a tie, and I was so excited. I couldn't tell anybody. Then all of a sudden, a couple of hours later, I'm sitting down by myself and I get a call from the from the general manager that the, he got uh, overruled by the by the owner and said he's gonna he wants a different different coach. It was just a a very heartbreaking uh, moment. Uh, I was home by myself. Uh, my wife was out and she came home and I had to tell her what uh, what just transpired. So it, it 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 devastated me. It really broke my heart because, uh, like I said, in in uh, where I grew up was, you know, the word is your is your bond. It's yeah. uh, my my parents, uh, as soft as they were and as loving as they were, they always told me never to trust uh, people from from the city. Uh, meaning that the white people don't don't trust them, don't trust them at all. They they break all their promises, they broke all our treaties. So I heard that my whole life, and I I didn't believe it. But here I was, had uh, something promised, and all of a sudden they take it away. It was it 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 hurt a lot. How do you feel about the game and how it treats players now? You know, I, I think we're we're getting a little bit better, but uh, it's it's better from uh, from the white perspective on how we we think it should be changed. 
instead of talking about the to the grassroots people who who actually went through the experience and how it made them feel and and how their their emotions and how it affected our you know just like the uh, truth and reconciliation you're not going to ask the priest how, how how they think the the schools went no you have to talk to the survivors and, and get their opinion what uh, what happened and what what transpired in order to make it better uh, but you could do your own part but we do the three Nolan hockey camp and we we educate our our our, uh, our kids on our own we go through it and and what you go through but you know is it getting better i i you know uh, kids and, and families are, are learning a little bit more uh, my grandson plays baseball oh. and went out uh, last uh, last year and he, and he misjudged a, a fly ball and it hit him right in the head oh no and he, he dropped down and, you know, he's crying a little bit. But I tell you, five or six of the kids from the city came over and, and said, are you, are you okay? And I thought it was such a such a cool moment because yeah. Yeah, when I was going through it, they would have laughed and said, look at that dumb Indian. He can't even catch a ball. You know, those, those, those so things are, are changing. And uh, I did everything in my power to, to make uh, life a little bit better. Like I said, uh, you, you want to make sure you, you have a footprint and especially my, my parents, the, the one thing I really wanted to do was was honor them in some way. And by honoring them in some ways, doing good and doing good is, is being a good parent. And I just really wanted to to be there for my kids and and help them in whatever way it did. And so I, I, I made a rink in my backyard, just like I did <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, they went out and played and they both fell in love with the game. Uh, but tell you the truth, Neil, I, I didn't put him in hockey to to try to play in the National Hockey League. I just yeah. uh, it was a sport everybody played, and uh, they got better. And and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Brandon gets drafted to the NHL first. He ends up playing a, a little bit with the Carolina Hurricanes until his injury happened. Then all of a sudden, his younger brother gets drafted in the seventh round by the LA Kings, and a couple years later, he's he's hoisting the the Stanley Cup and bringing that cup back to the community was was uh, one of the moments I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, seeing the 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 emotional side of the you know some some people had some tears in their eyes and they're so happy <laughs> and it was just one of those moments that uh, I'll never I'll never forget and and we had a chance to do it uh, do it three times through uh, Jordan's uh, uh, being part of the LA Kings twice and being part of the St Louis Blues. Ted, once again, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for coming back on the show. Take care. All right, you too. Ted Nolan is a former NHL player and coach and 1996-97 Jack Adams Award winner. His book, Life in Two Worlds, A Coach's Journey from the Reserve to the NHL and Back, came out in October, and he was Neil's guest on the show at the time. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Take care. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Ipi Chiwetelu. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.